0: Hello and welcome to Through the Valley Podcast. I am your host, Aquino Davis, and I'm happy to share with you my life experiences as a husband, a father, a professional, and an entrepreneur living in the Caribbean. Join me on this journey as we explore and relive those experiences that have shaped me and that may influence you. Get your notepad and your snacks as we journey through the Hello, I'm so happy to be back this week
1: with you. If you hear the birds, they are keeping me company. I can't silence them. They are nested just outside my home studio. So please forgive the birds in the background. I hope you enjoy them as much as you enjoy listening to the episode.
0: This podcast has been so liberating thus far. Last week's episode, One Icebreaker was so well received. I just want to thank all those who downloaded and listened and who sent their comments and their feedbacks. It has been quite an encouraging boost to continue with this podcast. I wasn't sure that it took would take so nicely to return. I am so grateful and appreciative. And I, I just want to thank all of the listeners and everyone who downloaded. I want to start by saying hello to my family, to my wife, my son, my daughter, my sister, my brothers, my dad, everybody who who have tuned in, who sent the encouragement and the feedback. I want to thank all of you for giving me your support as far. And I want to wish you all a very happy day and week. Before we start in episode two, I just want to reflect on episode one a little bit. Episode one icebreaker. I meant to give you an introduction of who I am, where I've come from, the journey I've started walking, and all of those
1: formative
0: experiences that informs this podcast. And I want to continue expanding so in this episode Through the Valley, namesake episode of the podcast, It is is reflection on the experience of losing my wife and son going through it and witnessing people die, witnessing people fight for their life and struggle. It was the most formative experience I've ever had. So I want to share that with you today. It started when my wife took in for delivery and we went to the hospital to give boot. For some context, my wife was a sickle cell kiss. She lived all her life with that disease. And for those who don't know, sickle cell is a, a blood disorder where one has deformed red blood cells and as a result, shaped like a sickle. In most basic of explanations, they don't carry as much oxygen as a regularly or normally formed blood cells would carry. And that impacts on oxygen flow to the brain, blood flow through the joints, and it usually results in excruciating them debilitating um, pains and movements. All her life she grew with that and the advice she always got from her doctors was that being pregnant would be a risk. Being pregnant would be a difficult thing. So she's always had that in the back of her mind, at least to my knowledge and I've always had it in the back of my mind since I met her. And When we became married, naturally, you want to have a family. We took every precaution that we could, visiting our doctors and ensuring that we were following every precaution that was recommended. And when we got pregnant, we enrolled in every necessary clinic, private and
1: public, that would guide and provide the best care. So
0: in our know, minds we believe we had our bases covered when she took to the hospital on that fateful night. I visited with her earlier the evening and it was about ten o'clock at night the hospital called and asked me to to come back to the hospital. Leading up on that day my wife was having pains associated with the pregnancy and went into the hospital early we felt that we needed to have this baby removed and we've been pleaded and asking for the doctors to perform a c-section at the earliest opportunity but that was to be a last resort they preferred and advised that we hold out for an actual delivery so when i returned to the hospital At 10 p.m., I was totally shocked to see that my wife, she was not in the right frame of mind. She was very aggressive, screaming. She didn't recognize me, didn't know who I was. It was just a scary experience to witness. She had no clue who I am, and I was trying to calm her. And the doctor and the nurses asked me then for my permission to do the cesarean section. By the time that procedure was completed, the baby, our little Josiah, he was born stillborn, and my wife had slipped into a coma. It was the most sudden, abrupt, tragic, devastating thing that I have witnessed because you see this person, against all odds, carry a child for nine months, take every precaution that was necessary, not having any issues during the pregnancy to threaten the life of the baby or herself, and then you go in for delivery, and within a few hours, the baby is dead, and the mother is... Comatosed. The hospital didn't even have available space for intensive care to keep and treat with her in the comatose state. So we had to get an alternative prison. The hospital did find space at the community hospital of the Seventh day Adventist in Trinidad and she was transferred. To that institution on the morning of the 22nd and thus began her care at that institute so <laughs> overnight when this thing happened early in the morning to call all the family inform them what took place the baby was dead my wife who was a sister friend daughter to her parents but to inform them what took place, they came to the hospital. My mom at the time was living abroad, but she came into the country the very day to be with me. We had the, my wife transferred to the private hospital for intensive care, and when she was transferred there, I decided, look, I am not leaving her, and. I took up residence there at that hospital. My mother ended up meeting me there, and she came and she stayed with me at that hospital for days. During that time at the hospital, that was tough because I had to be husband protector at that time. I was so scared, so frightened. And because of being scared and frightened, I, I became so... Overprotective. I remember my wife being in the intensive care unit. It was a struggle because she couldn't breathe on her own. What the doctor described is that she had a lung failure and that would have contributed to her psychosis in the first instance at the hospital because she wasn't getting oxygen to her brain. She became a, a bit demented. So I had to see her connected to all these machines, to assist her to breathe, to keep her alive, keep the heart pumping, seeing her laying there bedridden, baby died. And Just trying to be there, be supportive, family and friends coming into the hospital to visit. And day after day it was tough, but I had a very simple routine. And this is where the training began from the time she entered into the intensive care I started to write at the journal. I never kept a journal in my life before about anything. And I just felt that tugging in my spirit then to start writing, document everything that was happening, that happened the days before, that which I could recall to memory. And so I started writing. And every day I would document the activities of that day. It would usually start with me getting up in the morning, praying. Um, I would have considered myself... uh, proper practice in Christian at that time. So I would get up in the morning, I would pray, I and my mom, would read our Bible, we'd have breakfast, i shower, I'll then go to Von room. That's my wife's name. And I would pray with her. I would brush her hair. I would try to touch her, try to tell her about the weather, the time, the date, try telling her about things happening around And it was always exciting to see reactions. Sometimes she would start breathing heavily or she would start fidgeting in the bed and her eyes would roll open and close back. So I tried to do that routine on a daily basis because she stayed 13 days in that coma from the 23rd of April until she died on the 5th of May. During that time, her son is already dead we had just started a business in construction, design, and management. So I had staff at the time who I had to attend to. So after coming to Vanna's room in the morning, I would then ready myself to go to the office, go see about bills, see what client needs. And then I would come back to the hospital in the afternoons to one and prepare myself for visitors in the evening. We'd have visits from both our families, friends, well wishes from the church, our co-workers. So every day there was that routine. And all in between this time, I am here trying to figure out, well, how do I communicate? Our baby, our son, our Josiah was dead. His funeral arrangements had to be made. That was really tough. But nonetheless, within a couple of days, arrangements were made with, with the funeral home to cremate Josiah. And I remember the first time holding him was at the funeral home. The evening, my mom and I to the funeral home. And the funeral director, Sister Sheila, God bless her soul, she brought him out, took him out of the freezer, laid him out. And I remember picking him up for the very first time. And... I inspected every part of his body, though he was already there and already had autopsy done, stitched back up. But I just inspected every part of him. I looked at his hair, his facial features, his fingers. I looked at his toes. I looked at his penis, to ensure that he, he was a boy. <laughs> I held him, you know, I touched him cold and hard. But all I felt embracing him was so much love. I just felt like my whole will had been manifested. And all I could think about was what if this potential had lived. I was so stoked about being a daddy for the first time, so excited, so pumped, I was so ready, at least I thought I was, you know, I was so ready for parenting, and to have all that hopes and dreams in the palm of my hands, that was so riveting, but I had to deal with the reality that pretty soon he, he would be no more, the body would be no more, spirit having been already gone, and I remember, At that time, there was so much hopes on the expectancy of this pregnancy because in my side of the family, we were eagerly anticipating the birth of this baby because it could have been the first grandson into the family from my parents because we already had females being born into the family, nieces from my my siblings. So the expectation was that we will have a boy. At that time we had Chelsea, we had Kayla, and we had Jade. So we were really expecting this baby boy, first grandson. So at the funeral parlor when my mom held him, I remember looking at her and just seeing her weeping, her nose running, her eyes, with tears running down. And I could feel that a part of her too. Was torn. I still have those pictures. I was smart enough or conscious enough to walk the camera, take some pictures of that occasion, and I still, even now, look at the picture of my mom holding him, seeing her expression. That child looked exactly like me. He was this splitting image of myself. All the features of my face, my nose, man, I tell you. <laughs> and now having to lay him to rest the next day, We had to take his clothes to prepare and make the arrangements. I have to say that was the first time I ever experienced anything like that. And I could tell you that there is nothing, no experience, no feeling of hurt and anguish and pain that I think rivals a parent having to literally, as a child, to bury a child, as we see. There is nothing on the earth, I think, to rival such a feeling. The hardest thing is for a parent to have to bury a child. Children should be burying parents. That evening, I came back to the hospital, and I went in to see my wife was still unconscious and I expressed to her I went to see Josiah yeah and he was nice and he was good but in my mind I was thinking how do I explain this to her because this was happening while she was comatosed when she comes out of this coma how do I explain to her as a new mother that your baby is no more that he didn't survive the bulletin experience I had cremating before you came out. All of these things were thoughts that were exercising me. It was really tough to contemplate these thoughts. And treat with her uh, being at the hospital. It was not always easy to see her because sometimes she had her up these and had down these. There were times when she had to do her physical therapy because in laid up in bed for all those days. The concern was that you should have muscle dystrophy, muscle, release, so she had to have physical therapy. And then sometimes we had visitors who not welcome visitors who, for one reason or the other, I wasn't comfortable with or the family wasn't comfortable with. And I have to tell you that it wasn't easy dealing with her family. As I said earlier, I became so super protective that I started to be almost obsessive in who I allowed to, to come close to her. In hindsight, now I could talk about this and i share the regrets I had in taking that kind of stance because I feel like that a wedge between I and her family, that my attitude then wasn't the right one. But I also look back and I feel I feel a bit of maturity now. Because at that time I was what? I was 24 years old. My wife was two years older than I was. She died at 26. So, yeah, so I was young. At what I was mature, but I wasn't fully mature. So, I take responsibility for some of the decisions I made. In fact, I take responsibility for all the decisions I made during that time. If I had to go back and experience that over again, I don't think that the decisions would have been any different. Time is what it is. You don't hold the power to change time. But nonetheless, we had the funeral for Josiah. And as sad as that was, it was so good to see so many people to to support. One else's family, my family, my Her co-workers, some of my co-workers, it was just beautiful. We had a good service and ceremony for Josiah. But even after that funeral for Josiah, that was the first time that I actually felt about a depression. I returned to the hospital. Remember, I haven't been to my apartment since that night. And this is like, about four or five days after, I think. So I wasn't back at our place and been in the hospital. I have to tell you that I came back from that funeral service, what you say, and I slept the entire evening. That was the first time, I think, I really felt depressed. The reality, having to dispose of the body of your son, coming back to the hospital, a lot of... It started to take place. I recall it was at Thursday evening after church. She had a visit from our pastor. And as I said, I became kind of indignant with who would see her, who would visit with her. And if I felt that you were not genuine, I wasn't any close to her at all. And that's exactly how I felt about my pastor at the time. I didn't feel he was genuine because I expected a certain type of support. And I didn't get it, I didn't feel it. And furthermore, I didn't like being dictated to. This was my wife, this was my son, this was my pain, this was my family. I didn't have the capacity to be controlled and I expressed that. Needless to say that caused a big bacchanal as we would say here in Trinidad which is really, it caused confusion, animosity, and even in this time, it caused people to pull away, but to take sides in how they show their support. I was grateful, though, for my brothers and sisters from church who continued to support us after that incident. And I think... Looking back now, all of that controversy during this period of time really soured the enthusiasm. During the time at the hospital, I can recall days when, when I go in, that funnel would be so enthusiastic, so happy, so exciting. There was one time the nurses had to chase me out because I caused her to be so active if I will tell you what I did to cause that, oh my God. As a young husband, he was virile and strong, and I couldn't resist seeing my wife laying there and not touch her, not look at her. So, you know, young boy pulled back the sheets and had myself a good stare at her body, unconscious as it was. And then I ventured to fondle her breasts. And I think doing that, my God, that girl started to hyperventilate. And of course, I was saying nice things to her to tell her how sexy she was and how pretty she was. The nurses combed her hair in a nice hairstyle and they shaved her eyebrows and put on a lip gloss on her that evening. My God, I don't know why they did that, but that caused me to interfere with that. she began to really... Be agitated. Happily so, because that's one broad smile on her face, I recall it now. But the came running into the room. Mr. Davis, what are you doing? You're excited now. You need to leave now. <laughs> oh, my God. And I left, I left. I watched her settle hard, cargo her back dog. But she was so active, feet kicking. And that gave me hope that she was ready to come back to me. She was ready to wake up. Of course... I didn't feel for one day that things would just be back to normal. But I had a sign that she was still there. Her soul was still there, spirit was still there, and that she was still there. And I retired to bed, as usual. After retiring to bed though, that night I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep and I just felt like there was just this heaviness in the hospital, very eerie, heavy and big Christian man that I was at that time. I woke up and I remember praying and travailing and battling spiritually that night because the place was so heavy. The next morning, I realized that a patient who was in the same intensive care space as one of that passed away. And just as I came out to visit with her that morning, I couldn't go in because they were treating with that patient who died. And preparing to transfer her body out of the room. That experience to me was like whoa, it's like being in the hospital in the room and sensing that that airiness that really shook me, that frightened me hell out of because I felt it in the atmosphere there. And I think from that moment on it Became apparent to me that I might not leave this hospital alive. That was the first time I felt any sort of fear or uncertainty. So yeah, boys started to pray more. I began praying like if I was a monk. Every opportunity, talking to God, pleading with God, trying to bargain with Him. And I remember... The final evening of May the 5th, I remember earlier that day, she was good. I went about my routine and came in to see her in the morning. After I treated with the body, I went about my routines, came back to the hospital the afternoon. She was good and in good spirits, progressing well. Her condition, because of the collapsed lung, she had a lot of mucus in her, in her lungs and she was being administered oxygen from the time she came in up to that point to try and try out the lungs. Her blood pressure was stable. She, because of her sickle cell, she had a low platelet counts. Those things were being treated by the, by the medications. So we were really hopeful. I was very hopeful. And it was on that afternoon, May the 5th, when I came back to the hospital and came to visit her. Had the doctors came to my room and... They told me then, Mr. Davis, we are really sorry, but we are doing everything we could do for Bonnell, but it doesn't appear that she would recover. In fact, we don't expect her to last through the night. They said, if you have family members, people you need to call, you should probably contemplate calling them because we don't think that she'll last through the night. That was like somebody kicked me in the nuts. That was like a blow me down the belt. Right.
1: I felt that thing in my loins. And um, I called up everybody I could call.
0: My family, my family, or friends, come to the hospital. The doctors say that they don't think she would pass during the night. I called the church, sent a message to my pastor, to well-wishers, asking if they could lift her up in prayer. And to my surprise, I don't know if they... If they over church early or what? But to my surprise, within quick time, there was a lot of visitors there, and we entered a session of prayer, trying to bang on heaven's door to heal and to restore.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was at this time that I referred to earlier that. There was the confusion that broke out between my past and myself, which resulted in members of the gym traveling thing and causing this aness environment let say after that simmered and passed, we were able to mutualment and it wasn't until. The morning when the doctors came to my room to reinforce that she would not make it that I began to call close family and friends to reassemble her back at the hospital that morning. And whilst we had all assembled, she came in and we were gathered in the meeting room having a session of Praise and worship that one of the nurses opened the door and she
0: tapped me on the shoulder to call me outside. I came outside, the doctors, they were there, and they, they told me, Mr. Davis, we're really sorry, but her heart just stopped. We did everything we could do. We're sorry, but Vonald is gone. All our family and friends were in there. And I didn't want to come over as defeated. I thanked the doctors. I shook both of their hands and I thanked them. I thanked the nurses on station. And I went back into the room. I didn't disrupt them. They were in flight of a song. And then after the song, I said, To God be the glory. His will has been done. But my has just passed away. I give God thanks. All praises to God still. That was probably the most mature thing I ever said in my life to this point. Just the acknowledgement that God's will is greater than my will or our will. And when I said that, immediately people started crying, screaming, bursting with tears consoling everybody. It was so painful that 15 days ago, she had put a baby dying midweek, having to bury that child, and then to reach this point where she passed away, it was something else, Man. So, whereas in, the nurses and they prepared the body for viewing. I remember going in after they gave us permission to go in one by one, two by two. I going in first and alone and holding her feet, my hands. And I bowed my head on her feet. I kissed her feet and I asked why why you have to go now? And told her that I loved her. I told her that I thank God for you. Because He used that to save me, I don't know where my life would have been if she didn't come into my life. Thank God for her, and I left. Went back to my room. I packed all my bags at the room in anticipation of leaving, because I didn't see that with or without her, I wasn't leaving as soon as she was leaving. And that's exactly what happened. Even even as I recall, recall this was like... We live in this. Over again. I question myself, and I ask 16 years later. I still question why. I still question why. Why? Oh my God. Oh, Sorry about that. I couldn't hold in those tears. But it it didn't get better yet, even... After Funnel passed, my mom, who was at the hospital with me, started to complain about feeling unwell. And before I knew it, my mom had fainted off. Fortunately, we were at the hospital, and when the doctors attended to her, they realized that she had had a mild heart attack at that very instant, and she had to be warded. My God, this cannot be happening! My mom getting a heart attack, mild as it was at this instant. No, 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 God. I began to to, almost trip myself, questioning, well, what is this? What have I done? What am I paying for? What penance? It wasn't easy. And even though I had purposely to leave the hospital with Vona, when the coronas came for her body, I couldn't go. I couldn't leave the hospital. I had to stay back to see that my mom was okay. We were happy to learn that it was a very mild heart attack. And she was being treated. The doctors treated her and put her in an induced sleep to rest. She was highly stressed during this period too. And even as they put her to sleep, the funeral agency came, they collected the. And that was my walk through the valley. This experience was the spawning of everything that my life has been since then. The decisions I made, good or bad. The choices I made, rightfully and wrongfully. The actions, activities that I partook in. This was the spawn of it. the most difficult walk of my life. That to thinly span from April 22 to May it was crazy, but I thank God, and I bless God that I was strong enough to go through this thing, because I was able to journal and write, to share experiences with people, visitors, family, friends, colleagues, having... Took that walk. I don't think now at this stage in my life there is anything that sway me at such a young formative stage of my life. Now recently married, just a year and eight months into my marriage, as a young man, that young, beautiful one to go through this crucible, walking through this valley is what shaped me. And I'm out now, 16 years later to share this experience audibly. Having wrote about it in a book that was well received, I'm now able to take this experience a wider audience. I still feel free, even now, free from hurts and angers, and I feel so liberated to continue sharing. I hope that today's episode through the valley was able to Help somebody. I want to thank all of you listeners. Thank you for tuning in, for downloading, for sharing. Even as I go, as I end this episode, I want to send a very, very, very happy birthday to my son, Caleb Eli Davis, who on Wednesday this week will be turning four years old. I am so excited for him. And I thank God for keeping him for bringing him into my life, bringing him into my family's life, and for giving me the last three years with him and for keeping him, preserving his life, even as he turns four years old. I am so excited. I look forward to celebrating this week. And again, I want to wish Caleb a very happy birthday. Son, I love you. With all of my heart. And even now, I hope that what is doing would make you so proud of me. God bless. I look forward to episode three. Sharing with you next week. Bringing more of my experience and stories. So thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that my story was able to impact on the life of someone. And I look forward to sharing with you again next week. God bless. Peace. I'm out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Through the Valley Podcast. I hope what was shared was insightful and impacting on you. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. And if you have a story to share or you know someone who does, send me an email
1: to valley at gmail.com. See you in the next show. Bye-bye.